Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. And we have a cool show for you today. I have Dr. Eric Wilkie holding on the line right now. Dr. Wilkie is an emergency medical physician and a prepper as well. And we're going to bring him on in just a minute to talk about being more prepared from a medical standpoint. We'll ask him a little bit about the uh, nuclear disaster going on in Japan. We'll ask him all kinds of cool stuff and we'll learn how to better take care of ourselves and those that we care about. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. You know, I love Ready Made Resources because their name says who they are, what they do, and what you get there. All the resources for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go, all you got to do is go over there, point, click, buy, and they send them straight to your house. And anything you need for your prepping, from long-term storage food to self-defense equipment to gardening tools, you name it, you will find it at ready-made resources. And of course, right now, they're doing what? They're running a sponsored uh, contest for you guys. You can win a free AR-7 survival rifle. All you have to do is go to today's episode or any of the episodes from this week, click on the link there where you see win a free AR-7 survival rifle from ready-made resources. Fill out a form, and if you get drawn out of the people that enter, you get a free survival rifle. So they're not just a great long-term loyal sponsor. Uh, they are also helping out the the, uh, the audience by giving away a survival rifle. And if at least 2,500 of you uh, enter that contest, I get a rifle too, which would be really nice. So tell your friends. And next month they'll run another contest, and they will give away an $850 Rock River AR-15 upper. And that is just awesome. So uh, make sure not only you enter the contest, but if we want to get more stuff from Robert at Ready Made Resources, that you continue to tell your friends about this contest right up until the last day of it. Next up, make sure you connect with me. You can do that on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Right now I'm somewhere with uh, my toes in the water and my ass in the sand, I hope, uh, on Sanibel Island. Uh, but I am still tweeting and I am still posting to Facebook and I am staying in touch with you guys. And you've also had, of course, a show every day while I'm gone. But social networks are here to stay, folks. Some of you guys are, oh, it's technology that could fail. So is the Internet. So is your car. Doesn't mean we don't use it while it's here. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to over 25 different vendors, and you're supporting the show at a whopping 20 cents an episode. So when you shut down your iPod or your computer or what have you, however you listen to the show, your Android phone, and you think to yourself, you know what, Jack gave me 20 cents worth of value today. Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Of course, right now, it won't even cost you 20 cents an episode because we're running a sale. I go on vacation, you get a sale. Those are the rules. That's how it works. So you can get your first year of Member Support Brigade right now for $35. That's $15 off by using the code VACATION. Either write it on the form or use it when you sign up online. Either way, I'll give you the discount. It's only for new members simply because I cannot logistically handle doing extensions for existing members while I'm on vacation. 
situation. It's just impossible. Uh, also remember, if you are military, prior service, or active duty, I have a special discount program that I run permanently for military personnel. You can email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com and I will give you that code if you tell me what branch you were in, when you were in, and what your job was. That's kind of what I need to know just to make sure I'm dealing with a vet. All right, folks, and as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate today to have Dr. Eric Wilkie with us today. Uh, Dr. Wilkie is a residency-trained emergency medical physician. He's been in practice for over 12 years. He also directs local fire department tactical medics for his uh, area SWAT team. He's traveled to Africa to deliver medical care in some uh, pretty harsh environments and uh, dealt with some very limited resources. And he's agreed to come on the show today and talk a little bit about survival medicine and what we can do to improve our overall survivability. Uh, Dr. Wilkie, thanks for joining us today on the show. Thank you, Mr. Spearco. Well, I'm glad to have you here, man. And, I mean, let's get right to it. We wanted to uh, basically have you on the show today to talk about some common diseases and things that happen to people, uh, specifically the stuff that we would worry about in a really bad situation with the potential to kill us and uh, recognize what we can do with them and our limitations as civilians and how we can work with medical professionals and uh, how we can treat whatever we've got. And what I wanted to kind of start out with is let, let's just start out with what are the top things that actually do kill people worldwide? All right, that sounds great. Now, since I live in a world that deals with lawyers, uh, my, uh, my disclaimer is that, you know, some of my medical advice is not intended to uh, supplant uh, that of a licensed practitioner and a uh, uh, so that how's that for lawyer ease? Excellent, um, excellent. But, uh, but yeah, I think uh, you know it's it's the non sexy stuff that gets us really. Uh, so when we look at what what the problems that we'd be facing and on a steer environment. So I, you know, I, again, like you said, I've been to Africa. I've practiced with very limited resources. But then you know, if you just look at what happens domestically, you know, we just had you know Joplin, Missouri, with the tornado, and you've had recent floods in the Mississippi area. Um, there were floods back east last year, and you know, so there's a lot of things that can disrupt what's kind of our normal uh, status. And typically, when we do that, um, it's going to focus, you know, around, around these uh, easy to acquire waterborne type infections. Um, you know, diarrhea, for as unsexy as that one sounds, that that is one of the main killers worldwide in the in the third world. And again, so if you take away sort of first world protections, you know, with our water supply and, and our sewage processing and all that sort of stuff, then we're kind of back in that same mode. Um, so from a high income standpoint, coronary artery disease, stroke, pneumonia, emphysema or COPD related to smoking, those are the things that are some of the top killers as you kind of go down the socioeconomic scale, and again, imagine going from first world to second world to third world, um, you know, you still have coronary artery disease and stroke on there. So, uh, but things start popping up the, on the list that's not on the high income one. It's like diarrhea, malaria, tuberculosis, pneumonia, prematurity, low birth weight, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of gives us kind of a general spectrum of, of some of the things that we deal with. Very cool. Um, now, can we talk about, okay, some of these things, you know, how how does a, a physician, a doctor, treat something like a diarrheal illness or a skin infection or lower respiratory tract infections in these harsh environments or right here where we don't have a harsh environment? And But what does maybe a civilian have to worry about if we're in that harsh environment and medical care is not available? Can you kind of contrast the two? Absolutely. Um, 
So number one, I'm, I'm going to run on the assumption that people haven't been listening to you about buying a Berkey water filter, and so they don't have any mechanism of purifying water to begin with. Uh, so one of the first steps uh, on a lot of these things that you're going to have to treat people for, uh, you know, some degree of dehydration or fluid replacement is going to be important. So we're going to have to build, you know, water uh, that's usable for us. Uh, the first is just clean water. So whether you're going to boil it or treat it, you know, you have to find some way to make this water safe. Now, I've heard you mention this before, and it's absolutely correct. Once you bring water to a boil, once you see the rolling, rolling boil, you're good. You know, you don't have to, you know, keep it there for three minutes or five minutes or whatever else, uh, unless perhaps you're hiking in the Himalayas. Um, but most pathogens, most of the stuff that's going to cause problems for us, are going to get killed somewhere around 140 and 158 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, or 60 to 70 degrees Celsius for the foreign listeners. Um, so once you get to boiling, you've well exceeded that. So boiling's great, but the problem is boiling's, you know, energy intensive. Uh, sometimes you don't always have the resources available. Uh, using standard chlorine uh, is a great one. And it'll give the water perhaps a little bit of a funny taste. Um, but you can easily come up with the, the, the criteria for what you need to do. For an example, if you're using 1% chlorine, uh, and you're going to try and do a gallon. You need about 40 drops of chlorine for that. And so you got to make sure you have a way of dosing with a dropper so you don't overdo it. But chlorine's great, easy to store, easy to keep. Um, but the problem, there's chlorine doesn't always work with some infections like Giardia, which causes chronic diarrhea. Chlorine can be a little unreliable with that one. Uh, iodine, uh, another really good thing, easy to have around, and this is what I have in my camping kit when I go camping, because I can take a small bottle of iodine, and it takes just very little to, to sterilize or at least make water potable. And I use betadine. It comes in a 30-milliliter bottle, and that will do 150 liters of water in terms of disinfecting it, so that works really good. Uh, the key thing with iodine and chlorine both is you're going to have to make sure it sits for a while before you, the water is clear. Um, if the water is really nasty, cloudy, ugly, um, you know, it needs to sit for an hour for that iodine and chlorine to kill off everything. If the water is very clear, you can cut that in half to maybe 30 minutes. Um, and then if you don't really have anything other than perhaps a two-liter plastic bottle, what you can do is take the wrapper off of the plastic bottle, make sure there's, it's just clear plastic, fill it with water, and put it up on a roof or something that's going to get a lot of sunlight. And if you leave it up there for several hours on a sunny day, it can't be a cloudy day. It needs to be a nice sunny day. Um, but if you leave it up there for about six hours, uh, then that will make the water pretty safe to drink. So number one, make your water safe. Number two is uh, is making it so it can be a rehydration fluid uh, with either salt and potassium and sugar. And again, you can just use plain salt, plain sugar to kind of get a rehydration solution. And the way you do that is, that, let's say if you've got a liter which is the same thing about four cups, say. Uh, you put eight teaspoons of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, and then if you can squeeze some oranges or, you know, mash a little banana and get the potassium in there, that works great too. So number one is you got to have good water that's going to be safe for human consumption. Number two is if you've lost a lot of water from dehydration, uh, you need to replace some of the salts, uh, and you do that with the sugar um, and the salt mixed together. Uh, and then if, you're, if we want to talk specifically about the diarrhea, uh, what, you know, how do we treat that? Um, you've got bacterial causes and viral causes. In the U.S., under normal 
conditions, viruses way outweigh bacteria in terms of the cause of diarrhea. So antibiotics really aren't going to help a viral diarrhea. You just got to wait it out, stay hydrated. Uh, and so anywhere between half to 70% of diarrhea cases in the U.S. are viral. Um, the, the famous one is this uh, norovirus that used to be called Norwalk virus. And so when people hear about the terrible diarrhea cases on the cruise ships, that's typically this norovirus. Now, if it's bacterial, um, and that could be E. coli, of course, that's hitting the news with what's going on in Germany now. You know, it could be cholera, uh, which was a big outbreak um, in Haiti not too long ago. Um, Shigella, you know, Staminella is on the rise in the United States. Uh, there was just a uh, alert that came across the Internet yesterday about that. Uh, and then there's the more chronic ones that can cause long-lasting diarrhea like entamoeba, histolytica, which is an amoeba, cryptosporidium, and giardia. All right, so now how do we approach that? What do we, how do we put this together in terms of a treatment pathway? Um, so if it's just kind of watery diarrhea, no fever, no blood in the stool, no big mucus in the stool, then I'm going to presume it to be a virus and just kind of treat with fluids. If you've got blood or you've got associated fever or there's a lot of mucus in the stool or if you have this, and again, I don't want to gross anybody out, but if it's if this kind of white floating stool, which means you're not digesting fats, that's another big tip-off that it's a, it's a you know probably a GRD or bacterial infection. Um, so that's going to need... Uh, you know, some antibiotics typically. Uh, most of the diseases will go away on their own despite whether or not you use antibiotics, but antibiotics can shorten the duration of illness and, and perhaps limit some of the side effects. Uh, and what we typically use is a, a drug called uh, a fluoroquinolone, which is ciprofloxacin and norfloxacin. Uh, the other thing that works pretty well is if people have ever taken a Z-pack, which is azithromycin, that works pretty well um, in diarrhea. The old standby, like doxycycline, uh, can be used in some cases. Um, and then if you have one of these unusual ones, this entamoeba, which is a, uh, an amoeba, or the giardia, which causes the white floating stools with a fat malabsorption, then you have to use a, a special drug called flagyl, which is also metronidazole. Very important, though, don't drink alcohol with that one. You can get really bad sick. So that may be a little too much. No, that's great. I just want to make sure people understand something here, that, that we tend to look at something like diarrhea. In the United States, it's a gross topic. It's something that we don't really want to talk about at dinner time or anything, which, which I'll admit, yes. But we also look at it as kind of a funny inconvenience, and I want to reiterate that in these harsh environments, places like uh, Haiti after the earthquake, um, people die from this. And they, and they die from it in large numbers. A lot of people die of this. And, and it, it's, it's from a lot of times dehydration. And the reason I believe Dr. Wilkie spent so much time going over making your water safe to drink is not just to prevent it in the first place, which is obviously a, a great thing to do, but in these environments people are dehydrating and they keep drinking as much water as they can, but if they keep putting these things back into themselves – they're creating a cyclical cycle that can only end one place, and, and it, it, that's the grave. And the whole point of this show is to help you avoid that and to help you understand that we have this belief here in America that we are somehow in this little bubble of safety, but if you take away our sanitation and our systems of support, 
these things kill uh, an American citizen with a $500,000 401k balance the same as they kill a poor person in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Oh, yeah. Worldwide, it's about the third leading cause of death, um, according to some statistics. Now, if you talk worldwide, kids less than five years old, it's one of the top killers, no doubt. So if we're in that situation and we don't have access to these drugs, what's the best that we can do? If we end up in a really bad situation like this, somewhere in a harsh environment, something like some of the places you've been to, if you don't have antibiotics or other meds, what's the best we can do? Yeah, you know, so if you're really that kind of, you know, screwed, so to speak, you know, you're really in the middle of nowhere, you have no access to, to antibiotics, um, somebody's going to have to be doing a lot to take care of you because you can really get incapacitated. Uh, and lots of fluids. You're going to have to use urine output as a measure, right? So what I'll tell a lot of people is you need to drink until you are peeing, right? You need to keep the fluids going. Now, one of the tricky things is some of these diseases will also have vomiting with it. Now, how do you get fluids into somebody that's puking? Um, and that's the answer to that one's carefully. Um, you'll typically give a teaspoon at a time, Almost constantly. This takes, you know, almost hour by hour attention. You know, constant attention for sometimes days. Um, you know, the these bad cholera outbreaks that we've had in our nation's past. I mean, it wasn't that long ago cholera had major outbreaks and killed people in the United States. Uh, it's only been in our, you know, say the last century or half century where we've really made these types of advances. Even malaria. Malaria killed tons of people in the Civil War and um, before. Um, so these things are not far distant for us. Uh, we've forgotten, but they're really not that far back. Uh, but yeah, so if you can't, if you don't have antibiotics, it's just going to be this constant fluid replacement. Um, and it needs to be water. And if you can get the salt and sugar in it, that's all that much better. Uh, and constant frequent sips, constant drinking, constant drinking. Now, you did mention a lot of medications, and through hook or crook or just over the counter, people tend to, um, they listen to the show anyway, stock up on some medications, including things like if they have an opportunity to, even though maybe they're not supposed to, antibiotics. But when they're doing that, is there, because I get this question all the time, what about the storability of medications? What are the dangers? What are the risks? What are, you know, how long can something last? And I know some things just kind of, don't work as good anymore, and other things can actually become dangerous. Uh, great question, too. And, um, you know, kind of going to the hook or crook side of the uh, the question about medicines is, you know, when you're traveling overseas, you can go to a physician that kind of specializes in travel medicine, and he'll write you for all kinds of prescriptions for the just-in-case and tell you how to use them. So I sort of view that same philosophy uh if you happen to be caught in Joplin, Missouri, or you're in one of the floodplains, and you, you just physically can't get to medical help, you know, so if you've got some understanding and background, and especially if you've perhaps talked to your physician, you come up with this plan, I think it's a, a very reasonable um, and, you know, proper thing to do in terms of part of your planning. But how long can medicines last? This is a really interesting question. I've spent a lot of time digging through this. The food and drug industry or the drug industry in particular the pharmacy industry is a lot of money and i think they have a lot of financial interest in selling drugs obviously uh, and so these expiration dates that they put on there um, probably have two functions number one it's a cya piece and number two 
they want to make sure that they continue to sell drugs. Well, the military was spending a ton of money on replacing drugs that have expired. They they had them just in case. They didn't use them. They expired, then they were getting rid of them. So the military got together with the FDA and actually did what was called the Shelf Life Extension Program, where they studied this. How long will will drugs stay good? Can we use these on our soldiers, um, even if it's well past the expiration date? Uh, And interestingly enough, trying to get that original article, all the links on the Internet are now dead. I can't get the original article. Um, But I was able to get lectures that referenced that article and had quotes and pieces out of that. Uh, So I've kind of pieced it together through a variety of different things. Um, Because, again, I've never been able to get the full text of the uh, Shelf Life Extension Program. That's, uh, yeah... um what was the old line from Saturday Night Live? Isn't that special? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, there's got to be something dirty in that. Well, folks, anybody out there that might have ever been privy to this, let us know. We'd like to receive that. Uh, please continue, Dr. Wilkins. Yeah, I, just I would, wanted I would to bring love that up. To have, I would love to have a full copy of that one. So, anyways, the military and the FDA studied over 200 different drugs. Um, and basically, according to this, their data, um, you know, these will last. Uh, at least 107 months additional to what's already on there. Uh, there was one quoted, you know, military study that said over 90% of the drugs were safe and effective after 15 years. Right? That's a long time. Now, this typically is a, a pill format or dry powder, you know, not a liquid, not an aerosol. Sure. And then, and people also, uh, and, and definitely not water purification tablets. They failed. Once water purification tablets have exceeded their expiration date, throw them away. They're not good anymore. Um, now, one thing that's kind of bantered around, and uh, I, I ascribe to this as well, this is where I was taught, was that tetracycline was a particularly dangerous one that you wanted to make sure that if it was expired, you don't use it. I've always so, heard that, and I've always taught that. Is that not true? Well, uh, digging through this, um, where does that come from? That comes from a single uh, case that was reported in 1963 where they just assumed that this tetracycline dose caused this renal failure and renal problems. And they noticed, well, the tetracycline that the patient took was expired, therefore we think that caused it. Well, there hasn't really been problems reported uh, you know, in the literature since then uh, you know, and it's contested to say, well, did the disease that the person had that they were taking the tetracycline for, was that what caused the, the renal problem and has nothing to do with the tetracycline? So it's very contested. Um, nobody's really willing to do a study about testing it on patients after an expiration date because you have all kinds of ethical issues and uh, doing that. But uh, the data behind not using tetracycline that's expired is minimal, I'd say, at best. Um, but, every, but otherwise, you know, all your normal standard pill format or powder drugs that aren't reconstituted, um, you know, I, I would store them in a, in a reasonable way, in a cool, dry, dark place. Probably if you throw O2 absorbers in there, they'll make it even better, just like you would with food. Um, and everything that I've learned, if these meds are 10 years old, 15 years old, and I've stored them properly, I would have no problem personally taking them. And I, I would also say that my understanding has always been, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that other than this one thing with tetracycline, and that's the only one I know of, and if there's another one, again, please correct me, but other than that, 
any of these medications, what happens to them is their efficacy declines, if anything. They do not turn into a poison pill that's going to kill you. Right, right. I have not come across anything that, that makes that you know, type of fundamental shift. Like you said, you may have a little bit of drop in efficacy, uh, but even when they were measuring that, they, they found that the efficacy drop was you know, less than 10%, very minimal, even going out that far. And if anybody wants to dig, there was an, uh, a Wall Street Journal article in 2000. Uh, the author was Lori Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. And she really kind of talks into this shelf life extension program and her research uh, about the drug company and, you know, how much financial overlays in this and how much of its business and how much of it's, you know, real for protection of patients. Uh, so if anybody wants to do any further digging or background checking, that's a good one to look at. Great. I was going to ask you about this. I, I had an email on this uh, recently. I haven't checked into it at all. Maybe maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. But if you had, I'd like your comments on it. I got an email, and what the person had said is that there's a new type of insulin that stores without refrigeration now. Yeah, they're, they're marketing that on TV quite a bit right now. It's sort of this injection pen. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's something that has caught my attention as well. I want to find out how much of it's marketing, uh, how much of it is uh, – you know, real, uh, but it, yes, it's one that doesn't require um, uh, refrigeration. So you can put it in your pocket or put it in your purse and carry it with you all day and dose it, which I think would be a phenomenal thing. I've had several people that are type 1 diabetics asking me, what the heck would I do if I couldn't get my insulin for a period of time? Um, and we really don't have a good answer to that one. I, you know, a good physician friend of mine uh, that I'm going to try and have him put together uh, you know, one of our presentations, one of our slides for YouTube, because he's a type 1 diabetic. Uh, and, and this would have some very interesting possibilities if it's stable, uh, it could be stored for any length of time without having refrigeration. I think that would be a great advancement. Um, but I don't have a lot of details on that one yet, other than I know it does exist, but I don't know to what extent it's stable um, beyond that. Very cool. Because I'm, I'm very interested in that as well. Because it's a question I get from anybody in the audience who's basically a diabetic is clearly concerned about this. And I get even if I have six months of diabetic medication stored in my my refrigerator, freezer, whatever, um, it, it does me no good if the power goes out and I can't get power back on and it all goes bad. Right. So so that's one we need kind of some more research on. But it, it's promising. And talking to the the type two diabetics that are out there, and there's a lot of type two diabetics using the medicines help a little bit, they don't really help that much. Uh, you know, we do everything we can because the consequences of diabetes are severe, but taking your your insulin or taking your oral pills for diabetes, you know, doesn't isn't a miraculous effect like people would hope. It's not like insulin in a type 1 diabetic. Uh, so if you're caught without resources and you're type 2 diabetic, proper nutrition, good hydration, weight loss, that will do phenomenal changes and uh, potentially you know, change you from being a diabetic to a non-diabetic. And not to lecture, but that's what they should be doing now. That's what you should be doing now. Very, very true. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, just, it's a condition people don't have to have. I, 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 I believe that, that. I don't think there's very many people that are type 2 diabetics that have to be. Um, right. It's a lifestyle thing. It is a lifestyle, because we're seeing it a lot in kids. We used never, never, never saw type yeah. 2 diabetes in kids, and now we're starting to see it. 
Yeah, I was watching that show, Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, and he was trying to the first series, um, and he was trying to get through to this uh, DJ who just thought, you know, he was a nut job and wanted to take away the milk, the strawberry milk from kids and all. And the way he finally got through to him is he got him to meet him at a place, and he took him to a funeral home, and he showed him these new caskets they're having to make to bury people because the people won't fit in a normal casket. And it was this right. casket that looked like you could fit a Volkswagen in. <laughs> and and the, and the guy said, man, maybe we really do need to do something. And I, it's stuff like that and our kids and stuff. So kind of shifting gears a little bit because I have a lot of people that are very concerned right now. And I've been kind of the let's keep a lid on this thing. Let's not overreact to it. Um, but there's a lot of people still very, very concerned about Fukushima and radio, radioactivity and fallout, and it's going to get us over here. And there's some guy on the radio, I won't say who he is, but we all know who I'm talking about. I would say, you know, he's like, there's a giant cloud of death heading for America right now, and they're lying to you about it. Um, you did this fabulous presentation on, on, on radiation exposure uh, on YouTube. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I don't want to get through the whole thing, but just your general thoughts on should the average American sitting over here right now be worried about radiation fallout at a high level from Japan. And then kind of, you know, the other side, though, if you were living in Tokyo right now, would you be concerned? Right. Well, I, I'm currently wearing a completely lead-lined suit and popping potassium pills every 30 seconds. Um, so that's what I recommend <laughs> for everybody right now. But, no, uh, I, I, have, I have no concern um, – about what happened in Fukushima, about having a serious impact on me. Could they detect microscopic amounts of a, a radioisotope in the western United States? Sure they could. Uh, is it going to be much more than what would be present in background radiation? Probably not. Um, so, no, I, if I'm not in any way freaked out about what's going on in Japan. If I lived in Japan, that's a little bit different story. You know, fallout is important. Uh, yes, it can go up in the atmosphere. Yes, it can be there for a while. And uh, But again, we're always exposed to small amounts of chronic radiation throughout our lives, whether it's from the sun or whether it's from radon. Radon's probably the most common one. Uh, you know, our bodies know it. We've lived this way for a long time. And, and so putting a little bit here and there, uh, you know, from something that's halfway across the world doesn't freak me out. Uh, now, where I live, you know, there's a uh, nuclear reactor nearby. Uh, so, you know, I think you need to be cognizant for what's around you. Um, if if I lived in Tokyo or if I lived somewhere around there, I think it's probably reasonable uh, to take potassium until data comes in where you know where things stand. Now, again, potassium is only going to protect your thyroid from taking up a radioactive form of iodine. It doesn't do anything else for any of the other types of radiation exposure you're going to have. Um, and then, so it's also probably important to know, you know, what is fallout, um, how long do I need to be worried about, what do I do for my food and water, and just some of these basic things to reduce the chances that you concentrate some of these radioisotopes within you. Uh, it's important when you talk about eating fish or something that you have this uh, concentrating effect as you move up the food chain into larger and larger fish. And so, uh, living in Tokyo, yeah, I'd have I'd, I'd have my my concerns. Uh, I'd try and be prudent about it. I wouldn't be living in a bomb shelter. I would definitely wash my food with water that I knew was uncontaminated, wash it well, um, 
you know, I would probably take potassium if I was anywhere near Fukushima or if I was in part of the pathway of a cloud. Uh, again, until, you know, until we think some of the isotopes are going to fall out and not be much of an issue. I agree completely. My one thing I am a bit concerned about, though, is seafood. Um, would you have yeah. any concerns with with seafood right now, with all the stuff that dumped in the ocean? I maybe mean, I basically said if it comes out of the Sea of Japan right now, you couldn't pay me to eat it. Yeah, that, you know, that's a bit of a problem for me. I love sushi, um, and uh, so yeah, I, if it's if it's being shipped over from Japan uh, after what's gone on. Yeah, there would be a little bit of a concern. It's like, well, how much is being concentrated now? Knowing, knowing the fallout that people would get—no pun intended—using the word fallout, but knowing the crap that the government would take letting something in that tested positive for some of these things, uh, you know, I think there's probably some reasonable screening tools that may be in place. Not that I want to put, an, you know, an excessive amount of trust in the organization. I think has multiple flaws, but. Uh, it would be a political nightmare and disaster for them. So I'd, I'm sure they've got a lot of concerns with any imports coming from that side of the world. And so I'm not going to stop eating fish uh, here in the States. Um, I would probably not be eating sushi in Tokyo. Uh, and if there's a, if a sushi place or someplace I'm going to eat is getting a lot of import from Japan, uh, I may wait a couple of months personally Uh so we get some more information on that. Okay. But if I happen to eat one fish that was caught somewhere in the Pacific that, again, has a trace amount of something in it, it's probably not a concern. This is not like polonium or some other weaponized level of radioactive isotope like a, like that guy, that Russian guy that got knocked off by the KGB. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I think it was in London that happened. And what I keep trying to remind people of is, and I'm not saying this was a good thing when they did it, but in the 60s, our government detonated nuclear weapons in the Nevada desert. Um, and I, to me, there was probably a lot more exposure from that inside the United States than there would have been from anything that happens in Japan. Right. Uh, you know, and... and we didn't have tons of people dropping dead across the United States from that. Uh, and even even if you look at the people that were exposed to radiation with the atomic bombs at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you know, uh, there was a good number of people that were exposed and never had complications or problems to it. Absolutely. Well, let's not beat that one up too much. I kind of want to move on to kind of another subject now, if we can. I'd like to talk about what people should be doing in their own homes to be prepared to deal without medical help. So what are some of the things that should be in that first aid kit that should be, uh, you, you should look at making as, as much a part of your long-term storage as, uh, as uh, the beans and bullets on the Band-Aid side of things? And maybe what kind of training should a person try to get? Because here's the thing. Um, I see people all the time that are like, you know, they buy these field emergency field hospital backpack or whatever. And I'm like, what do you think you're going to do with that? I mean, if you're a doc, fine. But, um, you know, these guys, you know, like failed high school biology and now they have a surgical kit. Um, I don't think they're going to get that far with that. But I think there are things we can do that will save lives. Yeah, definitely. And, and Jack, let me apologize if my... If my uh, thing's breaking up a little bit, let me know. I'm in a hospital, using okay. the hospital wireless. So no, you're good right now. Okay. Um, 
So, you know, and I get this question a lot from family and friends. Uh, You know, what do you do to get ready? Well, all right, what are the most common things you're likely to encounter? Just and you just apply your common sense and what you've experienced in the past, and they'll probably tell you a good number of things: cuts, scrapes, you know, uh, breaks in the skin. Um, Those are fairly common Um, things that you know people fall, they injure themselves doing work, so. Potential broken bones, um, those are fairly common. Um, and then you've got, you know, your typical snotty noses, coughs, congestions, flu-like illnesses uh, that are that are out there. So if I'm building a kit to kind of get prepared uh, for being without some uh, access to medical help, that's kind of where I'd put my first attention. I would say, how am I going to close a wound, and what do I need to know about closing a wound? And uh, you know, what are things that I could, you know, obtain as a layperson, and then what, you know, are perhaps some more advanced things. Uh, what sort of training do people need? Well, there's there's all kinds of stuff that's out there. Like I said, YouTube is sort of revolutionizing education in a sense. You know, YouTube and all the other things like YouTube. I'm using that just as an example. But you can find a tremendous amount of information that's out there. Now, reading about it or watching a video and actually having proficiency are two very different things. Um, like when you talk about planting a garden so that you know how to do it in case you ever had to, the same would apply here. You need to you need to practice it and do it a little bit because uh, doing it for the first time is probably not the best time to try and put it all together. Um, so band-aids, super glue. Super glue is what we use to you know glue wounds together. Now we use the FDA approved fancy super glue, but it's basically cyanoacrylate, which is the same stuff. Um, I've closed wounds using duct tape, you know, a good sticky duct tape, you know, not the crappy ones that fall off when you start sweating just a little bit. Um, you know, so there's a variety of things you can do uh, up into, you know, closing with stitches. Now, vets know how to stitch pretty well. Or guys that are farmers that have stitched animals will know how to stitch. It's no different, you know, on a person to a, an animal. And the key thing is, anytime you're closing a wound, before you close it, you want to make sure it's very clean. You don't want to close in bacteria or other debris that will set up a bad infection. You know, so having it under some running water for 15 minutes, 10 minutes will be a huge help. Uh, if it's a grossly contaminated wound, let's say you sliced your hand because a cow stepped on it and then you have a bunch of manure in there, that one you probably don't want to close. You want to let it just heal from the bottom up so you don't close in a really nasty infection. Um, so I'd learn basic wound care. That's a big one. Uh, how do you deal with fractures? Uh, well, I, I'm actually, that's the next video I'm trying to put together. I got a, a request from one of the, the people that are following me on YouTube. And, and that's a really interesting one because how do you diagnose a fracture without an x-ray machine? Uh, well, obviously, if your arm's bent at 90 degrees where it shouldn't be, that's probably a good indicator. But if you don't have that, how can you tell? Well, there's one thing you can do if you have a tuning fork and a stethoscope. So bones will transmit sound kind of like any other solid object. Uh, so sound travels better in water than it does air. Same sort of principle applies. So if you put a stethoscope on one end of a bone and then a tuning fork on the other end of the same bone, if it's not broken, it'll be a fairly loud sound, and you can compare it to the other side of the body to make sure, okay, that sounds about the same as this other side that's not hurt. Now, if you're, if you're listening and the sound is greatly diminished, that probably indicates that there's a broken bone right there. 
So that's sort of the poor man's x-ray machine. Uh, it's just using a tuning fork and a stethoscope. So then once you figure something's broken, you need to know, well, it takes probably about six weeks to heal. And in that six weeks, you need to immobilize it in as straight of way as possible so that the, the bones heal correctly and you don't have loss of function. Uh, so those are the, I'd spend some time in that. Uh, you can get basic EMT training. That's always a very good thing. It helps you understand more about diseases other than just broken bones and skin cuts. Uh, you start learning about respiratory stuff. Uh, you start learning about cardiovascular. I think everybody, uh, since it's free, I would at least have a PDF version of this book called Where There Is No Doctor. This was written by a guy who was doing some missionary work in Mexico. Uh, he was not medically trained whatsoever. And he realized he wasn't able to effectively uh, do what he wanted to on the mission side until he realized, I need to take care of these people's basic needs. Some of their basic needs included health uh, issues. So he has written, as a layperson, written a book that's really very good, very well done. Um, and he talks about how do you provide health care where, where there's a no doctor. So if you Google where there is no doctor and you go to their website, you can actually get a free PDF of the entire book. And I'll put a link to that today in the show notes. And <clears throat> I'll say this. It's the, the hard copy, and there's times when electronics fail. And that may be a time when you most need to rely on this as a reference. Um, but I have a hard copy of this in my library. And if you're looking to, like, fill out that prepper library, so to speak, I, I can't recommend that book highly enough. And as Dr. Wilkie says, written by a layman, I can read it, and I get it, and I understand it, and I know what to do. And I think that's more valuable to me than, like, a surgical manual or something like that, where you, you guys, when you go to medical school, Dr. Wilkie, you learn the, the laborious name of everything. But if somebody spits out a six-syllable six Latin word and it says it's adjacent to that, well, you know what the hell that means, where I'm going, what the heck is that? So I think that, that that's an outstanding reference that every prepper should have. All right. I, I usually buy that book in, in groupings of six or, you know, to ten. Um, whenever we travel to, you know, any place, we pass those out left and right. Uh, it's a It's a great, great tool. You have traveled to uh, some pretty harsh environments, and you've you've given medical treatment in places like Africa, and I imagine probably not uh, the you know the Johannesburg, uh, South Africa that you fly into that's nice for a vacation. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned by being in those environments and treating people in those environments? Uh, the biggest thing that I learned is how important water is. Uh, you know, I know that I've kind of pounded on that one a little bit, uh, but it, it's that's such a fundamental key need. You have to make sure that you, if you don't have clean water, you know how to make it clean, uh, or you know how to make it safe. Uh, that is that's the, the number one thing that sticks out in my mind every time I've gone over there. Um, the second thing is you will be surprised how much you can do with not that much as long as you uh, you know have a little bit of background and training. I mean, we've taken teeth out using a Leatherman. Uh, you know, I've used my multi-tool. Yeah, my <laughs> multi-tool I've used to stitch things up. You know, it, it, you know so there's a lot of uh, kind of Band-Aids, duct tape, safety pin type medicine you can do. And I think it's key to understand and have a certain supply of some medications. Now, some of those should, you know, probably fall in the antibiotic category, but also 
what about Imodium to slow down diarrhea and prevent volume loss, you know, with, with a diarrhea illness? Uh, how do you make an oral rehydration solution if you don't have Gatorade or Pedialyte or something along those lines? And, you know, how it'd be great to make sure you have something for just pain and discomfort, you know, ibuprofen, Tylenol, you know, whatever you want, whatever's your drug of choice for that. Um, you know, my wife makes sure that we have more bottles of ibuprofen in the house because, you know, once a month, that is the, the number one drug of choice in our household. I also have a daughter. So uh, they've made sure that we will not do without that particular medicine. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you also are open to, I guess, what we've come to call alternative therapies today, um, where I call them traditional therapies. Uh, I watched one of your videos on using honey to treat wounds. And, you know, that's generally not what you hear an emergency room physician talking about. But if it works, it works. And what are some of your thoughts on some things like that? Yeah, I think I think the last sentence you just said, if it works, it works. Um, now, you know, I, I sort of straddle a line. From my standpoint, I want data showing it works. I want somebody that, that puts it through a test that's well-designed, uh, that shows that there's good effect. Um, you know, but to think that it has to be produced by Pfizer or sharing plow to be an effective uh, treatment, I think, is also perhaps maybe a little short-sighted. Uh, a lot of the medicines are derived from a natural source to begin with. Uh, you know, penicillin is a great example. Taxol, which they use for breast cancer treatment, came from the bark of a tree. Um, you know, honey was something that they studied, and they compared it to these antibiotic ointments that we place on wounds, and it did as good, if not better, than these expensive, uh, you know, uh, medications. Uh, so there's very well-designed stuff, and when I see that, I'm like, boy, honey's a lot cheaper. Uh, it's more plentiful, and if it works better, then, you know, why not use it? And I think there's things that we can just observe and see that work. For instance, um, I don't care what a study says or doesn't say, I know that calendula uh, will reduce inflammation and pain, stinging and itching on insect bites because... I've done it. It worked. And I know that aloe vera will reduce the pain and stinging of a burn because I've right. done it, and it works. And, I mean, um, I, I'm with you. I, I think there's a lot of snake oil salesmen, and I think they do tremendous damage to the alternative therapies industry. You know, they, the guy that sells the coral calcium, and he does a you know a pseudo talk show. guy calls in and goes, yeah, my wife has cancer. Ah, oh, take coral calcium. Uh, next guy calls in, my leg's ready to be amputated from gangrene. Ah, take coral calcium. It'll be fine. I got bit by a shark. Ah, give him some coral calcium. And, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff is nonsense. But I think there's a lot of things out there. And as you say, a lot of the things that we're using in medicine today have natural sources. Right, right, and uh, you know, and I I would like to increase my knowledge base off of uh, you know because I've used aloe myself. You know, you get a burn, you go out, you break the aloe off, you squeeze it on. You know, uh, and um, you know, so what what are some uh, that that's an area of interest that I'm trying to delve into more and more. You know, about what how well does echinacea work? Have we studied it? You know, what are some things out there? So I can in increase my repertoire of, of, uh, of things that I'm aware of and know. Uh, and again, the, the, the difference between something that you would get out in nature uh, and something that you get from a pill bottle 
the thing that the pill bottle has is it's going to be a purified, concentrated form, so the chances that you notice an effect may be larger just because of the way it's produced. That doesn't mean this other thing doesn't have something that works, uh, but it may just be hard to get it in a in a large enough volume to get the same kind of effect. Now, again, it doesn't mean that you you know you can't get some effect or some benefit out of it by by any stretch. And I think I think there's I think the disconnect between let's say the two worlds lies in this. As a doctor, especially as an emergency doctor, you have people come to you with an acute condition that needs to be fixed now. And a lot of these things that are more of an alternative methodology are not so much, okay, you know, like I've always said this. If I get in an accident and I have a yield sign in my spleen, I want you taking care of me this second. I don't want to see a naturopath. I really don't. I don't even want to get in the way of you trying to save my life. But some of these things seem to, to have a much better uh, preventative effect or a stabilizing effect. And there's things that aren't even really considered therapy or medicine. It just We know they work because we know what they do in the body. For instance, Apis Americana or ground nut um, controls insulin response and it is an appetite suppressant. And it, 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 we don't have to um, you know, study the ground nut to really understand this. We have to know its components, and we have to know that since it, it, it contains certain things that do that, well, then it's a source of those things, like any other thing in our diet that would do that. And I think that what people, I guess the, the issue is, and why this stuff doesn't work better for people, is it requires responsibility on the person where if I'm sick and I come to you and you say, okay, you have this bacterial infection, here's an antibiotic. My only responsibility is to avoid, you know, let's say maybe alcohol while I'm taking it and to take it the way you told me until the bottle's empty. Where if it's, I'm going to have to control my diet, I'm going to have to pay attention, I'm going to have to engage my own responses, it takes more work and it takes more effort. It does. And, you know, and, and you're sort of also hinting at a larger issue with uh, just staying healthy. You know, the chances that you can respond to a, you know, severe stress to your body, you know, whether it's injury or infection, you know, greatly depends on, on your overall health. Uh, so everything you can do to improve your overall health just puts you that much better positioned for what might come your way. And what are some what are some of the things that you think people don't do in America that they should be doing to to not even just like fix their health but to maintain it in the first place? Uh, well, this will sound like the broken record, but you know, Americans, uh, you know, we're we're lazy, fat, and happy. We're rich as a nation. You know, granted, we're going through a terrible recession. We've got people out of work, but compared to the third world, you know, putting it in that type of perspective, there's no comparison. We yeah, are our, so, our poor people have air conditioners and big screen TVs and drive vehicles. So yeah, right. we're rich as a nation. Yeah, and, and so again, I don't want to take away from the one individual who's going through a very tough time, but speaking globally, it's, it's night and day different. So, uh, because, you know, we've, we've been so fortunate with everything that we've had access to, you know, we, we don't work as hard. You don't see, when I go to Africa, you don't see a bunch of fat people. It just, that's just not there. Uh, you know, so, you know, your diet, you know, eating, eating things that are healthy, you know. I, I love the way that you talk about gardening because, you know, eating fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, uh, stuff that doesn't have a bunch of crap on it is probably a great thing to do. Uh, you know, increase your fiber intake decreases the chance you get colon cancer. Um, you know, exercising regularly. And, and again, it doesn't have to be going to Gold's Gym and, you know, doing your reps, doing with the, 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 the sit-ups or pull-ups or, or bench press, but, 
you know, just doing reasonable labor, um, you know, or something that will uh, help your, your cardiovascular status with your, your endurance as well as some muscle strength, that goes a long way. Uh, as we age, you know, we lose calcium in our bones, but the more you use your muscles, the more you have resistance training, um, you know, or you're, or you're carrying milk jugs or you're carrying the, you know, five-gallon water pail out to the chickens or whatever, that uses your muscles. That helps strengthen the bones. It helps prevent that calcium loss. So, you know, kind of like you're going to a, in one sense, going to what we've done for centuries before we got so advanced and, again, fat and lazy and happy is, you know, get out and actually do some work. Um, eat healthy. Eat right. The, those two things, I think, will go a tremendous way. And, again, I, I think it sort of fits the mindset of a lot of the people that probably tune in to listen to your stuff. Um, you know, they want to be more self-sufficient and you know more active on their own anyways. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if people want to learn more about, you know, what you're doing and the information you're sharing, you have several resources available, right? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get better at that. Uh, and it's all sort of started uh, back on putting some stuff up on YouTube. And, and what initially triggered this is, uh, there were some people that would go to Africa and do some of this mission work, but if I didn't go with them or if they didn't have a doctor or nurse and they came across one of these problems, I'm like, boy, you're going to be in a real world of hurt. So I started to try and put this together originally to help people that might be going out into the boonies. Um, and then, as I think a lot of us several years ago, when you start putting things together on your own, thinking, boy, our country's really pretty broke, and, and uh, I don't see anybody taking any serious steps to fix this. And what happens when, you know, we're no longer a permanent, you know, status in the world and our currency is less value, and you start playing these things out in your head, and you're like, well, uh, I think it'd be irresponsible of me not to, not to take steps to make sure my family's taken care of. Um, and so it sort of evolved from, some people are perhaps going to the third world to so now saying more local or more close to home. It's what do we need to do, you know, for ourselves to make sure that we can take care of ourselves and not have to rely on, on things that may not, not be available to us. Um, so YouTube is where most things are and it's, you know, just under, you know, YouTube slash user slash survival medicine. Uh, that's where I put up most of it. Um, but then to try and augment that and, and people have asked me to, put some more stuff in writing uh, so it's not just the video stuff, but they would get something, you know, in print. Uh, I've started a, a site at Tumblr uh, where I can put some of this information, and that's, you know, survivalmedicine.tumblr.com. Um, and, then, uh, and then, you know, hearing you rant about Facebook, you know, I'm trying to get better at Facebook, and I haven't quite figured out what the page name is, so I'll see if I can get that to you. I'll have to ask my daughter how to name the page. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a good idea to add that as uh, part of the URL so you can give it out the way you just did the other stuff. But email me the link, and even if you change the name, the the, uh, the hard back link that's there now will still forward, and I'll get that in the show notes so people can connect with you there. Uh, I'd like to thank you for the effort that you're making. Um, generally speaking, doctors aren't totally broke, and uh, you're probably not doing this to try to, to, to make a fortune or anything. You're doing it because you want to help people, and you want to help your community. Community and uh, hopefully you guys won't end up broke uh, at, with the uh, the new Obamacare that's that's headed down the pike. Um, I know a lot of doctors are really really concerned about that. Yeah, you know, I, 
I have my own concerns, uh, largely because we just started a very expensive program that I don't know how we're going to pay for. Um, do I want less access to care? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, you, you hate seeing people come in that are injured or ill, and, you, you know, you want to help them. That's why we can go into this business. Uh, physicians are well paid, no doubt about it. You know, I'm not going to complain that, you know, I'm, I'm barely scra- scratching by. But if you look, healthcare in the United States is insanely expensive, but that huge amount of cost is not going to physicians. If you match it to 1990s dollars. No, I completely um, agree with yeah, you on that. It's actually gone down by comparison, but... Again, not that we're hurting. I'll take that as a misstatement. But, but yeah, so but talking to my friends and looking at surveys, there looks like a, a very significant portion of doctors that are thinking of getting out of the field or retiring early. And I think it's the general practitioners that are the most concerned about this. Um, our, our genius and commander in chief has a new plan that basically, uh, if you if you're qualified to go to medical school, if you'll commit to a certain number of years of practicing as a GP, uh, we'll just pay for your school uh, because they're they're that concerned about losing the GPs. Right. Well, there's already a shortage. It's hard to get people. I'm sure if you've got somebody that's out in your audience that's on Medicare and they don't have a doctor, trying to find a doctor that takes Medicare. Sometimes it's tricky. Same with Medicaid. Now, if if we're right about the, the surveys about people that will leave the field out of just dissatisfaction from, you know, the ever encroaching, you know, governmental oversight, uh, I think that's another important reason for people to kind of start self-educating about medicine because it may be harder to get in to see somebody. It may take longer to get in to see somebody. Uh, you know, you may need to know what questions to ask once you finally get there. Uh, so that you take charge of your own medical well-being. Um, never be afraid to ask a doctor a lot of questions. You know, you get somebody that's not willing to answer your questions, go to a different doctor. Um, that You know, they should never have their ego hurt by you challenging or questioning them because uh, as much as I try and pretend that I'm not, I'm very fallible. I, I will make mistakes, and my wife will tell you lots of mistakes I've made if, if <laughs> you want some proof on that one. Um, but it's important just to... You know, again, educate yourself that even if nothing bad ever happens to us, right? Nothing, no economic problems, nothing, everything's great. There's a good chance we'll all get sick at some point, and the more you know and can ask, the better the chances that you'll get appropriate treatment. I was wondering real quick since you brought that up. I say this a lot, and I wonder if you've seen it maybe in a different way. But I've talked to two different oncologists, uh, folks that I know fairly well, um, that have said that when they're treating a cancer patient and they've got that person with that kind of 50-50 probability or maybe even like 60-40 on the negative side, um, where it, there, it's a reasonable expectation this person's not going to make it. That the patient, even if they're, if they're both the same and they both end up doing the same thing, the patient that's a pain in the ass, that wants to know why we're doing this, is there an alternative, why do I feel this way, can we change this, that person tends to, to beat the odds more often than the compliant person because they know what they do matters. Have you seen that in medical practice, that a certain will or desire or activity on the patient increases recovery time, increases survivability? Absolutely. And uh, now from an emergency stance where you see them for a short period of time, you don't get the benefit of something sure. like you're talking about. But this is, this is you know studied in a bunch of different levels. Those with a good attitude, 
those that laugh more, those that are more, you know, engaged or willing to fight or whatever, the life expectancy and all of that is is better. You know, um, again, it, you, even if you take people that, you know, where, where they look at just how interested they are in, in interacting with other people, you know, the ones that are just enjoy life, uh, they typically live longer than the people that don't, even with all things being the same. Yeah, yeah. So there's I, I think I think you're you're saying about mental attitude is very important. Very awesome, important. awesome. And then there's the old joke that says something like, "What is it that married men live longer, but they're more willing to die, or something like that?" <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. I can tell you about the you know the drop in testosterone that men get yeah. after they get married. But, <laughs> but hey, anyway, uh, Doctor Wilkie, this has been a great interview. I really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, I'd like to propose something. I'd love to have you back sometime if you'd like to come back. And what I, I think would be cool is uh, we could just kind of pull the audience here at the end of the day and say, I'm sure there's questions you have about medicine and emergency medicine and, and, and shit at the fan scenarios and anything else we can think of. Send me email, jack at the survival podcast.com. And if it's, if it's for Dr. Wilkie, put question for the doc in the, uh, in the subject line. I'll put together you know, 10, 20 questions, and we'll get you back on to answer those questions from the audience. And that way we'll give the audience exactly what they want to know. From, maybe not the answer they want, but we'll get answers to the questions they want answers to. That'd be great. I'd love to do that. That'd be awesome. We'd love to have you come back on again. Thank you for being on today, and folks. Um, I, I hope you learned a lot today. I know I did. I know I have a, a new view on some of these things and uh, reinforce some old ideas as well. And uh, I will put links to uh, all of Dr. Wilkie's uh, social media connections so you can get in touch with him uh, that way. So please do so. And I'd love to hear your questions. I'm sure Dr. Wilkie would as well. And with that, I'll go ahead and wrap up today. This has been Jack Spierko along with Dr. Eric Wilkie, uh, helping you figure out how to live that better life and maintain that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Revolution. 